Greetings, I'm Cody Cook, and you're listening to Cantus Firmus. My guest is Germinal G. Van, an author, economist, and scholar who was born and raised in West Africa's Ivory Coast, who immigrated to the United States in 2010. He's written for the Foundation for Economic Education and the Mises Institute, and is the author of The Economic Condition of Black America in the 20th Century, Historical and Empirical Analysis, which is uh, what I asked him to come and talk about. So, uh, Germinal, thanks for taking time to talk with me. Thank you very much. Would be appreciated. Well, so so first of all, I'm interested in your background. What got you interested in economics, and what brought you to the United States? Okay, so uh, why don't we start by what brought me to the United States before we got into economics? Sure. Because my interest for economics uh, came much later. Um, so I always wanted to live in the U.S. I remember when I was ten years old, I told my mom that one day I would come to the United States. I always, I don't know why, uh, there is a very French, uh, there's a very famous uh, French proverb that says, I don't know if you guys say the same in English, but probably you guys have something similar to that, which says, um, the, the heart has its reasons that reason itself ignores. So I couldn't explain why I wanted to come to the US, but there was something inside me that was telling me that, it's the United States. But I always liked the Anglo-Saxon mentality too. So that is definitely one factor that uh, drove me to the US. But even when I was 10 years old, I didn't know about the Anglo-Saxon mentality. Of course not. This is something I got to learn when I was in high school. So but, speaking of the, the Anglo-Saxon mentality, is that like kind of like the empiricism, kind of rationalism type stuff? Or? Yeah, empiricism, pragmatism, specifically, specifically pragmatism. I always love, yeah, the the Anglo-Saxon mentality. So I would have been honestly comfortable living in not just the U.S., but the United Kingdom, Ireland, uh, English-speaking Canada, Australia, New Zealand. So basically those places because it's just the the, the same mentality or the same framework. Like, I mean, it's, it's still the same framework there. So, But I wanted to come to the U.S., because by then when i made my firm decision i was more i was mature enough to understand that the united states is the only country on earth where you can actually start at zero and become successful you don't have that opportunity in europe in europe of course there are africans who are successful but they're mainly athletes or musicians um i've never seen African entrepreneurs who are making millions or billions of dollars or euros in Europe. It just doesn't happen. Why? Because the system is not designed for that. But in the United States, which inherited the Anglo-Saxon pragmatic mentality, which uh, emphasized that you do not need to have a PhD to be successful in life. That's America. So, I I understood that I had a big I, I have a best shot at coming here and work my way up, so I decided to. That's why I wanted to come to the U.S. and uh, so I came in 2010. I went to um, to the 
Catholic University of America, where I got my bachelor's degree in political science. This is actually one of my biggest regrets, but we'll come into that later. The, the, uh, the subject that I studied. Uh, and I got my master's degree in the same field uh, from the George Washington University, which is, which is also in Washington, D.C. And then I wanted to go to law school after getting my master's. But to me, going to law school wasn't to become a lawyer. It was more about becoming a politician because in the U.S., it's conventional wisdom that uh, to become a politician, you need to have a law degree. So I wanted to fit in that conventional wisdom. I took the LSAT three times, failed, couldn't get into law school. I mean, I got into law school, but not into the schools that I want. I got into three law schools, but they were not uh, ge geographically fit for my wife and I. It wouldn't be good. That's why I ended up not going to law school. And I got into writings because I felt intellectually insulted. <laughs> Let me explain why what I mean. Uh, so when I was studying for the outside, I was like, those kids who are getting to law school are not smarter than me. Why they? Why do they have that I don't have that makes them get into law school? But of course, you know, uh, standardized tests in America, there is the language barrier. That that is a factor too. And but I realized that I I have a gift for writing. I always enjoyed. Uh, immersing myself into uh, the analysis of fundamental ideas. So that's why I started to write. And I mean, I started to write a very long time ago. I started writing like books but I, that I never published because I wasn't able to complete them. So it was in 2018, I've, I've decided to complete one manuscript and then publish it by all means. So I decided to write and publish my first book, which I did through Amazon, through the self-published uh, platform, which is actually a great platform for anybody who wants to express his talent and his ideas. And it's a great source of income too. I mean, don't get me wrong, it won't make you rich from the get-go, but if you keep going at it, yes, it will, it will definitely get you there. And then through my, uh, scholarly journey i start drifting more into economics when i move from the republican party to libertarian ideas because libertarian ideas are more focused on economics than any other political idea so that's when my interest my interest in economics sparked and i started reading hayek Mises, and rampard and Thomas Sowell and Milton Friedman and all these free market guys. And that's when I got stuck into economics. That's interesting. Well, I was going to say, um, if, if, uh, if law school wasn't your path for, uh, to, to be a politician, you could always try reality TV. That seems to be the new. The yeah. New I mean, with the current prison we have for sure, it is the, the new way. <laughs> I um, mean, <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, you mentioned, um, you know, there's obviously the, the French influence in the Ivory Coast, and you went to Catholic University. So I wondered, is, is do you have a Catholic background, or um... so? I was not born Catholic, but I was born Christian. Mm. My mom converted to to uh, Catholicism uh, over fifteen years ago. My sister got baptized about three or four years ago. 
I'm the one who is the black sheep of the family when it comes to religion because, and this is my personal view. I know your platform, it's like oriented toward theology to some extent, but it's just that to me, I never truly believe in religion. I always distinguish uh, religion from spirituality. And uh, to me, religion was just like a tool for people to dominate others. That's why I never liked it. But spirituality, of course, I believe that there is a higher being, a supreme being, that is the master of the universe. And uh, because I believe there is an invisible world, you know, we, there is a lot of stuff that human knowledge cannot explain. And that's, I think that's even where the concept of God comes into, but this is something else we can talk about. I love talking about metaphysics, but. Um, yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Well, yeah. it's interesting you talk about your, your um, partiality for Western ideas, because it sounds very much like sort of an enlightenment uh, approach to God. And, and it makes me think of um, the Ethiopian philosopher, Zira Yaqob, who was kind of a, uh, kind of a predecessor to the Western enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, so. Um, that's really interesting. Sorry. Yeah. And we're not really going to talk in detail about theology or anything like that, but I was <laughs> curious about your background. So, um, okay. I'm interested in, in talking about your book, The Economic Condition of Black America in the 20th Century, uh, which is on um, Amazon, if anybody's interested. So I actually had it for a couple months before I read it because I expected it to be difficult reading. Um, and but despite the, the thoughtful analysis and the use of charts and graphs, um, it was actually quite readable. Um, and so I'm curious, what made you want to write this book? Great question. And uh, why I wanted to write this book was because I wanted to understand <clears throat> why Africans or African immigrants are more successful than African Americans or native-born Black people in America. And... Uh, I must say that immigrants have a very different mentality than native-born. And it's not just African immigrants, but whether it's African immigrants, Indians, if you notice, Asians, when, they, when we come here, we don't play around. We're coming to take everything. Like We're like, this is our opportunity. I remember when my father brought me here, he was saying, this is your gift for graduating high school, is to be in the U.S. That's it. Now it's your job to make it your own. So we understand that here we have the opportunities that we don't have in our own, in our homeland. So when we're here, we're very focused on achieving, on acquiring resources, material success, and whatever that can improve our living standard. And in and I didn't feel the same way about African Americans. I'm like they're taking here for granted but it's understandable too because that's the only place they know you know they'd be brought here by force we can we cannot deny that they'd be they'd be brought here by force they'd be subjugated for for more than a hundred years they were they lived as second class citizens they did not have access to to all the resources they need to build the wealth as the way Europeans had those same resources. So, so it, it really intrigued me. So um, I knew that and it really intrigued me, but I'm like, okay, if you guys know all of this, why don't you decide to change your condition instead of 
having that victimhood mentality. So I was saying, oh, slavery is because of slavery. We can, we like, I'm like, okay, guys, yeah, it's, it's been for, I understand, yes, it happens. We also have colonization too. Colonization in Africa has happened. And colonization is actually not that different than slavery. It's just slavery at home. That's all. It's just that Europeans came and imposed slavery on our soil instead of taking us to a foreign land. So it's the same concept. So it's not that slavery is uh, special just in America. It has happened in Brazil, in Cuba. It has happened even in Europe, where people used to enslave themselves. Uh, Asians, Japanese used to enslave Chinese and vice versa. <laughs> so Japan colonized China, in case you didn't know. So yes, the, even people of the same skin color, uh, skin color enslaved themselves. But and I understood that uh, racism, in fact, is not based on skin color. It's based on social class. This is one thing where I agree with Karl Marx, although, although I detest, not the man because I don't know the man, but I detest his work. But I, I respect his work, the intellectual construct of it, but I detest the substance of the work, if that makes sense. But there's one thing I agree with him is that, yes, society, human societies are divided into social classes and we attribute social classes to race we attribute race to social classes or vice versa whatever but is that um i made a youtube video explaining that um uh racism in fact started in uh in asia where the people that were um the rich the wealthy in society in society were called whites because we associate whites with intellectual brightness with aristocracy with the creation of wealth and etc so everything that represents um the success of humanity and then the reds were the the guardians so they were the one that actually protect the upper class they protect the white the white so that was the military the guardians and then you have the blacks the blacks it, we don't call them black because they were black by skin color we call them blacks because they were at the lower at the lower class of society, they were at the bottom. So they were the uh, the craftsmen. So basically, the uh, basically the layman. The layman is the black man. That's what it is. So it was those guys who could never really reach the level of the aristocracy. Basically, like they're doomed to be there. And then it was that concept that they attributed now, and they divided human uh human tribes into race because race is what you race is deals with animals not with human beings human beings are not like animals like to, you know so we europeans use that concept of race to distinguish human beings and say that okay you're from an inferior race you're from a superior race and so on and this um false concept has since then being the main concept that distinguishes people so i wanted to understand in america like what maintain black people in the level of poverty they are i'm like why someone like me who left my country to come here is better off than the native born because for instance i be, be, before i became a uh, a legal resident in the u.s i came with a visa and when you're and when you're a student you cannot take loans whether it's you can take private loans but you cannot take public loans so 
And if someone is not willing to give you a loan privately for you to pursue your your education, you're pretty much screwed. But in my in, in my mind, I was like, African Americans have the opportunity to take loans. They can pursue their education. Why they don't do it? Why they rather focus on things that will not build their skills to make them competitive in the labor market? So that's what that so that was that was one of the reasons what drove me to write this book. So I'm like, let me try to understand what has happened in the 20th century. How did they economically evolve? Because of course, black people are much better off economically today than they were at the time of slavery or in the 19th century. That's a fact. Today, the poorest black man in America, he has a smartphone. I mean, if you have a smartphone, you're not poor. Like, you have people in Africa who are extremely poor. Many African villages don't have electricity. They don't have clean water. They don't have any infrastructures to go to school or to get medical attention or just to file administrative documents. They, They have none of that. But in the U.S., the poorest man in this country has access to all of that. So I feel like, to some extent, yes, black people have been oppressed for a very long time, but they're nonetheless still privileged compared to the black man who lives in Africa and who doesn't have access to basic goods. So that was, so I, I, I wanted to, to understand what was the motive behind that. That's mm-hmm. why I wanted to write this book. Well, you know, you talk about um, kind of race as a social class um, thing. It made me think about, so in the West, what it essentially emerged is uh, under this sort of heading as like scientific social planning, um, which is why I think, you know, Hayek kind of links those things together in, in his book, The Road to Serfdom, where he talks, because he's dealing with Nazi, the rise of Nazism, and he makes these connections with social planning and this kind of ethnic um, stratification of society. Um, so on this question of um, why um, black immigrants tend to be more successful than, than uh, black people who were born in the United States, um, that's a really interesting question. And I was just reading um, uh, Beverly Daniel Tatum's book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, where she takes a broadly progressive line for explaining um, uh, wherever there might be some kind of a disparity um, along, along racial lines. Um, but even she, interestingly enough, so she, so she, she talks about like, uh, for example, you know, yes, you know, um, uh, Asians seem to be, because you would expect immigrants, if you kind of use this, um, this uh, what's the, the term, we sort of have these kind of concentric circles of, of, uh, of privilege and, and that kind of thing. And she said, well, you know, you expect an immigrant would be, uh, would be in an even worse place, but yet you look at Asian immigrants and they tend to generally be in a much better place. And she argued that a lot of that is the result of the oh, fact. Oh yeah, those guys don't don't those guys don't. Yeah, what 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 she kind of pointed out though was um, that in a lot of cases there's a bit of a selection bias, so that a lot of the people who are coming here from Asia are kind of the cream of the crop. They're people who have graduated college already, or the parents attained college, and so her argument was that it's not entirely fair to compare. But even she pointed out that well, at the same time, there's an element of culture here that makes that makes a difference. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in um, kind of your analysis as, as you're looking, as you've kind of looked at the condition of, of the economic condition of black people in America, uh, what you see as the, the kind of ups and downs and what's behind them. And so, you know, the way I, I've perceived 
the story about the economic condition of black people in America is that it's it's basically like static between emancipation and civil rights. So there's emancipation that brings up, up to one level and then it basically doesn't change until civil rights. And then, then it's been basically a slow upward climb since then. Um, but your book tells a more complicated story. What would you say are the, some of the significant turning points in the fortunes of black Americans in the previous century? So what has happened in fact was that black people were forced to rely on the market process before the civil rights. It was difficult, but when you look at the history of the black community, they have um, black Wall Street. In the 19th century, even before slave, before the abolition of slavery, you already had some black people who were very rich. I talked about that in the, uh, in the introduction of uh, you have like Wilcox, for instance, who was a sailor and he, he made a lot of money. You are, there's another one uh, who um, had a restaurant at 22 years old in the 19th century America, where you have a political system completely dominated by a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And yet you have some blacks who were able to thrive. So that's why I don't completely buy the notion of, uh, of uh, white privilege. I'm, I acknowledge white privilege in my book. I even say in the conclusion that yes, it does exist, but it is not the factor that, if, that, uh, that prevented black people from moving upwards because black people did move upwards. Um, so, well, I was going to say, you don't mention this in the book, but, but there were a number of elected black politicians to Congress in the 19th century, and then that suddenly disappeared. Yes, I did not. Yeah. Indeed, yes. I didn't, I didn't even mention that, but that's very true, uh, because I was focusing more on the uh, on their economic uh, condition rather than the political condition. So black people were using the market process to emancipate themselves, and it worked. Black people were creating businesses. Booker T. Washington was advocating for black people to get skills. He said, guys, you need to educate yourself. Once again, when we say educate yourself, we do not mean go get a PhD. No, we're saying read books, learn, learn by doing it. See people who have done it before you and learn from them so you can do the same way, so you can emancipate yourself. Skills emancipate you because once you know how to do something, you have it for life. Practice doesn't make it perfect, it makes it permanent. That's, that, that's a real deal. And that's what Booker T. Washington was saying. He was saying like, guys, I understand. For now, we live in a situation where we have to accept all the, in, the political and social injustices against us, but let's focus on developing our skills. Let's focus on creating businesses. Let's focus on expanding our community and improve our living standard. That's what Booker T. Washington was saying. And Du Bois was saying the opposite. Du Bois was, what Du Bois said was not completely wrong, but he was saying basically like that black people cannot really thrive because there is a system that is already established that prevents them from doing so. But in the long run, it's been, um, Du Bois has been proved wrong. He has been proven wrong that this system has probably maintain black people for a long time in, in, a, in a second class citizenship, 
but it did not prevent them from moving upwards. Uh, in the 1920s, for instance, the Roaring Twenties, Black people had a higher rate of self-unemployment than whites. This is something that people don't know. It's in the book. I, they, 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 I put a data about it. And, and, and you see, the decline, in fact, started slowly with uh, the New Deal. And then when Lyndon Johnson took power, when he passed the civil rights legislation, what was happened, what happened is that there was a social contract that was uh, established between the black community and a political party. So the Democratic Party says, okay, we're going to give you guys a set of rights which will enable you to basically have the same rights as us. But in exchange, every election cycle, you better vote for us. So there is a social contract. So what has happened is that black people were politically, they were emancipated, but economically it was a there, it was like a downgrade. It was a downgrade because that's when the the welfare state now expand. The welfare state already existed, but it expanded under Lyndon Johnson. The welfare state expanded and uh, and black people become more and more dependent on those welfare programs because those welfare programs have good intentions and people do not judge judge policies by their results they judge it by their intentions so you make more black people becoming dependent on the welfare state and the welfare state start to keep them in a perpetual state of poverty so it prevent black people basically from becoming more entrepreneurial for a while and and then of course like in the book i also attacked republicans especially nixon for the war on drugs to maintain black people as second class citizens he racialized poverty so uh and so basically it was it wasn't just democrats it was government both parties contributed to maintain black people in as a group of second class citizens so it was the market is because blacks rely on the market that they were able to improve their living conditions throughout the century. Well, and, and you um, you kind of said in this conversation that ultimately Du Bois was um, W. E. B. Du Bois was kind of proven wrong. Although I kind of remember in the book you, you highlighting some of um, some of the things he was he was kind of correct about, and it seems that um, you are saying that the the market has had a well. Uh, when black people have access to a free market, um, they're able to improve themselves, even in America. But there are things that can stand in the way of that. And um, that was the other kind of element that you talked about in the book, and you kind of hinted at here when you talked about the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially, I mean, prior to that, um, the role of the government in sort of basically standing aside during lynching and all these other sort of factors, basically, it, it, you know, people can't be free when, when they... Well, actually, as I said, I was just listening to uh, the, uh, the Econ Talk podcast where they had uh, Lisa Cook on who was talking about the role of racism and black people, black inventors not being able to get patents. Yeah. And, and so there is this kind of this twofold thing. On the one hand, the government, um, you see your, your, your book seems to say that when the government doesn't guarantee the rights of black people, they can't move forward. So there's kind of this combination of the government guaranteeing rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness um 
but also staying out of the way gen apart from that. <laughs> so that yeah, so yeah, I mean, that that's what constitutionalism is. Constitutionalism is limited government. The role of the government is to to do three things: to secure uh, liberty, to secure the life of individuals, to secure the liberty and their property. And in nineteen in eighteen sixty five slavery was abolished black people became full legal citizen what has happened the federal government said okay you guys are free now do whatever you want but don't forget that we were we were in the south and the south whites were not happy about the fact that slavery is no longer the economic system that built their state then they were no longer happy about the fact that they have to see the people that were they were using as tools of economic system now becoming free to do whatever they want they're not going to accept that we and when slavery was abolished few things happened the 13th amendment was passed which abolished slavery constitutionally so legally speaking the 14th Amendment was passed, which gave the right to full citizenship to anybody, including black people. And the 15th Amendment was passed, which gave black people the right to vote. So black people had the right to vote for a very long time. And they couldn't really vote. I mean, they, they've been voting, but the vote did not really have any impact. And these three amendments it was the right it was the role and the duty of the federal government to uh to enhance that to protect that and they didn't because don't forget that the u.s government the u.s constitution should i say trumps state cons constitutions it trumps state law so when you have a uh, when you have a um, a regional or local government oppressing you you have to size the federal government to make those the regional or the local government stop its oppression on you that's why we have a united states supreme court when the regional when i say regional i mean the state state supreme court so when the state supreme court makes a decision that uh that is not in your favor you appeal to the supreme court and what happened the supreme court in 1896 made it uh separate but legal no place v ferguson and it was the role of the federal government to protect the rights of black people yeah. so black people could not really thrive because they didn't they couldn't rely on a government that would protect their rights at the end of the day black people were already citizens like whites but the government didn't do anything about it until what the, the 1960s so that was one of the reasons why black people have been lagging considerably behind because they they didn't have enough access to uh to the political process in order to uh create the wealth they didn't well and and i think what what's interesting is as you read the like the bill of rights in the united states constitution there's an assumption that i think we have now that um our rights were protected 
uh, from the state, federal, and local government, that those rights were things that, that, that all government, all, form, all levels of government had to recognize. But that wasn't really traditionally how that was understood. It was essentially understood that the Bill of Rights protected us from federal government intrusion. Um, and then once the 14th Amendment comes in, and they talk about, you know, no, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor deprive any person of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, uh, property, uh, uh, or sorry, life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Um, what essentially the 14th Amendment was trying to do was to say, well, listen, it's not only true that the federal government can't violate individual rights, also state governments can't do that. And it's the federal government's job to stick up for the individual. So it used to be that the argument was essentially about states' rights versus, versus federal government's rights. And the 14th Amendment tried to kind of shift things where they belonged, which was on the rights of the individual. But the Supreme Court did not read the 14th Amendment the way it actually was stated. <laughs> and yeah. part, part of this issue was that whether or not the privileges or immunities clause in the 14th Amendment was the same as the privileges and immunities that were that was mentioned in Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution, right? So um, it is, it is, so, you know, I'm like, a, you know, I'm a libertarian myself and I am, um, um, but I, I vacillate a little bit because sometimes I, I think, you know, something like, uh, sometimes anarcho-capitalism sounds really, um, you know, really good to me. But then when I, when I read about how um, state governments have oppressed the rights of individuals and how the federal government didn't do its job to stick up, it makes me sort of think, wow, maybe, maybe we, that needs to be clear that, you know, the state is really there as, as the, the Declaration of Independence suggests it is um, in order to protect rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, but it's, so I think you, you kind of argue for a minimal role of government to protect those rights. Um, and I wonder, I'm a um, minarchist. what's that? I'm a minarchist. You're a minarchist. Yeah. And I, I'm, yeah. I, I am too, but sometimes I lean an anarchist. Um, so, <laughs> um, but so, but I guess considering the legacy of slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, all these other things, um, some would argue that it's that Amer African Americans actually need a proactive government focused on redistribution, affirmative action, and other playing field levelers. That basically the system is so corrupt that um, just basically standing back and allowing the market to do its thing is not enough to raise to, to let black, basically to create a level playing field where black people can be successful. That the that it's they don't necessarily well that the system is such that they don't actually have the same agency as white people do. Um, and so I, I wonder what you think about that argument. And then, of course, I think you, you've got to, maybe a, you've got to, we got ahead a little bit when you talked about the war on drugs and Nixon and, and the welfare state. But maybe this would be a good time yeah. to ex ex see how whether you think that's been a, a net positive or a net negative for Black Americans. What I find interesting is how Blacks are asking for the government to redistribute the wealth while it is that very same government that put them in that position in the first place. <laughs> so that's what makes me laugh about this thing. The market knows no color. I think when the market redistributes the wealth, it does it equitably. It rewards those who produce over the parasites when those who don't produce well they don't eat but when the government 
uh, redistribute the wealth, it doesn't even do it equitably either. It's going to do it at the expense of some people. And blacks are asking for the government to redistribute the wealth. The government so implements or impose more taxation on people and to create some programs, but those programs are not even effective. Those programs don't help uh, black people emancipating themselves. That's the, that's the thing. Black people were more economically emancipated in the early 20th century than after the civil rights. That's because black people rely on the market process. They were able this, and it's funny. And it's funny because that was a time where it was very difficult for black people. They barely have rights, and yet they still thrive. They were better off than after the civil rights. Bit better off economically. Yeah, economically. Yes, that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah, obviously, in some ways, they, they weren't. They were not. <laughs> but, no, but, yeah. but what you're essentially arguing, though, for is that some of the things that happened with civil rights legislation were were long overdue. The protection of of black people to be able to vote and and you know be treated equally by the state, um, you know, were long overdue. But essentially, when the government comes in and tries to take the reins economically and try to sort of plan uh, who gets what, um, things don't improve. And no, I guess. And that seems counterintuitive, right? Because it seems that if you give people money who don't have access to money, that that should better their fortunes, right? And so, so what, why does that? Why is it that that's not the case? Uh, be, simply because uh, the government is not good at allocating resources. Simple as that. And why the government is not good at allocating resources? Because the government doesn't think in terms of profit. When you think in terms of profit, you know how to allocate your resources. For instance, this podcast is probably, I don't know if it's your full-time job, but this podcast is a way for you to eat. I mean, you generate, I'm sure you're generating some money from that podcast. So you know exactly on how to allocate the resources to make your podcast grow and to become, you know, to become a, a good, a great platform. But what if me and the government, I'm going to say, oh, Cody, I'm going to, um, to I'm taking control of your podcast. I'm the one who's going to allocate the resources for your podcast. Do you think the results will be the same? Of course not. Because I don't think in terms of profit. Because for the government to remain relevant in its action, it needs to implement regulations on programs. The government, excuse me, the government always comes with the fact that the market fails. We need regulations to uh to make things equitable so that we have fair, fair uh, competition rules and competition laws that being said the government is the one then who decides what company gets what how companies should allocate their resources and they create programs for that those programs eventually becomes ineff become ineffective and when they become ineffective the government said, oh, yeah, those programs didn't run correctly because we didn't have enough resources. So what we're going to do to make those programs run better, we're going to create other programs that will actually do a better job than the previous program. So they create new programs that do CPR on the previous program. But how do you, do you create a government program? It's through taxation, always. So they're going to increase taxation again. And then that same program that they, that new program that they create will eventually short run. Uh, and it will 
and it will become ineffective. And then they have to create another program again because, as I say, government does not think in terms of profit, it thinks in terms of expansion of power. The more regulation they implement on a government program or on the market, the more it increases the power of government and it helps government create its own monopoly. Because if government thinks in terms of profit, the bureaucrats will become irrelevant because they will allocate resources efficiently. So there will be no long, there will be no other regulations to implement. So the job is done. So the, the policy, the, 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 the program has to not work. It has to fail. That's how they stay in business. Well, so then um, I, I guess another factor that I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on is uh, the role that dependence plays, the dependency plays on questions like motivation. So for example, if, um, if you're in a position where you know that you have guaranteed income from, from the state, if you do nothing, but then, it, but on the other hand, if you try to better yourself um, and sort of take control of your your, your economic life, uh, you know that the government is going to stand in the way of that. That it's going to be more difficult. That they're going to, um, you know, remove that um, that safety net for you. And 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 then, you know, for example, let's say you know you're you're you know you you braid black hair, and that's something you you do well, and you were taught to do it by your mother. And then, and then uh, you try to do it on your own to make a little bit of money on the side, and then the state comes in and says, "Well, you're not allowed to do that because you haven't completed a cosmetological certification that the state requires you to do." <laughs> so it, it, it seems that that it can remove the motivation um, for black independence, or not just yeah. black independence, but poor. I mean, I live in a, a majority white neighborhood that is, you know, a very kind of heavy dependency on on the state, and I see the same kind of things that you know that people tend to associate with black poverty. Um, and so obviously there, there's a fact, the, 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 the factor there is not color, the factor is the role that the government's playing. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, no, for sure. That's, and that's what it is. Like, that's the problem of the welfare state. I mean, I see the, the next question is like, has a lot of, uh, as a lot of black Americans being helped or harmed by the expansion of the welfare and, that's what it is. The government implements a welfare and say, okay, we're going to give you income. On the other hand, you have to do what we tell you. So you see that you're, you're, no, you're no longer free. If you make, if you decide to work and what you make from your work is above what we give you, well, you no longer get that. So people, they're like, oh, you know what? I'm getting free income. Why should I work for, you know? Well, there's no point for, to work if I get free income. And it, 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 it makes the government becoming the new parents, the parents of the community, and that's bad. The role, it has never been the role of the government to parenting people. The government is here to simply protect, to preserve the life, liberty, and property of people. That's all. Nothing more, nothing less than that. That's why a government exists in the first place. You're here because if I want, for instance, to open a business, I need a legality. That is that this is my property. That's why government is here. I saw the people that the government recognize that, okay, this is Germano's business. This is his property. And he's, he has the right to run whatever he, the way he wants. If I am, I am a free citizen, if I did not commit any crime, 
and someone attacked me for no reason, it is the role of the government to protect me through the police. If someone tried to murder me, it is the role of the government to protect me through the police as well. So the role of the government to protect my life, my freedom, and to ensure that I have access to the resources that will help me create the wealth, that will help me participate in the economy. Those are the three essential uh, functions. And then, of course, like for instance, I'm not opposed to government creating infrastructures because I, and that, and the reason why I'm saying that is because Americans tend to not understand sometimes that uh, government has a role to play, especially in Africa, because the, uh, because in Africa, there are many places that are poor. And the reason why there's poverty is because there's no infrastructures. And the market process works when there are infrastructures. This is one thing libertarians sometimes fail to comprehend. They talk about the market, the market, the market. Yes, but you need infrastructures for the market to work. And you need peace and security for the market to work. Why? Because no one will go put his money in a place where there is no political stability. That is one of the reasons why Africa is lagging economically, because people do not want to go put the money in a place where they can lose it tomorrow because there is a war somewhere. They don't want that. They which, want is, which is perhaps why, why China is spending so much time investing in infrastructure in Africa. Is there exactly. That, and, that, and that's what libertarians don't get. Like when that's, that's in, in that instance, the government is necessary. We need governments to build roads, to, to, to um, build infrastructure. We're not saying the government should own these infrastructures. The government should build these infrastructures, these inf infrastructures, and these infrastructures, and most of those infrastructures must be owned privately, if necessary, if possible. Mm. That's my point. Of course, the road where everybody's driving. I mean, that one. It it to to me like, I, it doesn't bother me if the government owns the highway or the street. Like no, like I'm not gonna put the I'm not gonna print the uncapped card here. Like on, on those ones, I think government has a role to play. Where the government doesn't have a role to play, it's when it tries to control private enterprise. When government tries to control the education system, when the government tries to control the healthcare system, that's where I believe that the government has no role to play. But well, infrastructures, yeah. But when a process works well organically, the government can only make it worse, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. So before we talked about infrastructure, you were talking about the role of the government in protecting people from having their rights violated by, by criminals or those who would want to hurt them. Um, and that, that kind of brings me to the next question, which was, it was hoped that the war on drugs and, and Bill Clinton's crime bill would help black communities by removing a criminal element from the black community so that law-abiding black people could thrive. And um, so that seems to be in line, at least at least on the surface, with what you were saying about the government protecting people. But it, that didn't seem to pan out. That seemed to have been a net negative um, for black communities and for black economic independence. So 
Um, why is it that in this case, uh, that kind of government involvement wasn't helpful? Well, it wasn't helpful because the motive was not to actually make law-abiding black people thrive. The motive was to maintain black people once again as second-class citizens. We all saw Joe Biden's speech in 1993 justifying his bill, why, why we need the crime bill of 1994, was saying, for my sake, for your sake, for our children's sake, we need to get those guys out of the street. Like he was talking, he wasn't stuttering at all. Fun fact. People say, oh, Joe Biden stuttered. But he wasn't stuttering. He, was, he knew what he was saying. He was very articulated, very convincing about why we need to be tough on black people. And sure, like the policy has been effective. It has reduced crime significantly. But it decimated a, an important portion of the black population because those people, because the three strike rule was the, the three strike rule was not necessary. It shouldn't be that harsh. Like if it was for because for whites, Joe Biden would have probably created a policy of rehabilitation. But for blacks, three, three strike rule, you're out uh, and you stay. And they were um, incentivizing uh, prisons to, uh, to maintain criminals there. And they will give them like more funds, more subsidies if, they, if the criminals were not able to have parole. Like it is a business. And of course, black people were the victim of that business because there was already at that point, what is, what is important to understand about the 1994 crime bill is that at that, at that uh, point when it was implemented, the, the racialization of poverty was consumed. It was already there. We already associate Blacks with poverty, Blacks with crime, and Blacks with failure. And that was... The racialization of poverty, in fact, was enhanced during Reagan. Although in the book, I say that I kind of defended Reagan a little bit, saying like, okay, income within the black community increased under Reagan. But when Reagan was calling black people welfare queens, he was saying that, oh, they're, they're, it's because of them we cannot get off the road of the welfare. Although at this time, there was more white people on welfare than blacks. See? But it, it was that false narrative that Nixon created in the first place. The racialization of poverty. That's when it was finally established under Reagan. So when Joe Biden argued for his bill, it was done. Black people need to, to, to be locked, to, to, to be locked, uh, locked out because they're the one who create all the trouble we have. Well, I, I think that's the irony of the um, progressive narrative on systemic racism. Yeah, is that they want to expand the system. That's yeah, racist. they always want to expand the system. Yeah. yeah. No, no, but, go ahead, go ahead. No, I mean, I, I think there's good evidence that there's there's racism inherent in the system, but oh, and, yeah. and, and the evidence is there every time the government expands its power, because you see more racist outcomes. I and mean, so, of course. Yeah, tr trying to expand the government even more is not going to fix that problem. Yeah, and 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 that's the thing with progressives is that. Progressivism wants to make change in society through use of government. But once again, 
people think that judging something by its intention it's enough for it to work it is not enough for it to work it doesn't work like that it's you have to judge by the results and the results are overwhelming the expansion of the state apparatus creates more disparities within people especially in a country like the united states which is not a homogeneous country that's what makes this country unique when it talk, when it comes to um social issues yeah yeah for sure so um you, you kind of you, you broke into this a little bit at the beginning but um i kind of wanted to talk to you about the the difference in how um, immigrants see this, this black immigrants see this issue versus black people who are born here. Um, and, and I've been spending a lot of time recently trying to get different black perspectives on, on, you know, the black situation in America. And so, you know, obviously the most common view is the progressive one, which sees ongoing racism and racist systems as holding black people back. And then of course there's more conservative black perspectives that see like um, a victim mindset and acceptance of criminality, lack of family structure, resulting from welfare as the primary causes of disparities between black and white. Um, and so, so there is there is more diversity among native born black people than, than is often acknowledged, but it seems that black immigrants in particular have even more varied opinions. There's more diversity in how they experience uh, being black in America and, and what they think, you know, the results of disparities are. Um, and, and I want to know what, what you think accounts for that difference. Is, is Do you think that you see things more clearly because you're like, you weren't reared here. You're you're sort of you're more objective because you're kind of an outsider coming in and looking at it. Or do you yeah. think there's something you're missing somehow? I don't think I'm missing anything. I'm sure you don't think there's something you're missing, but but I no, guess I, I, I generally think that I don't think that I'm missing anything at all. Instead, I've been here long enough to understand uh, the dichotomy. Of course, like when I've been here, I've lived with white people most of my life in the U.S. Of course, in Africa, I'm not going to be hanging out with, with whites there. Of course, I'm hanging out with my fellows. But in the U.S., since I've been here, I mean, the Catholic University is a white school. George Washington University is a white school. All my friends, most of my friends are white. My wife is white. I've been in white neighborhoods. I, I've been treated with respect, personally. I'm, here, I'm speaking from my personal experience. I've been treated with respect. I've never encountered open racism since I've been in America. Maybe people say stuff behind my back. I don't know. And I don't care because I've no proof that they're saying things behind my back, but some do probably. Who knows and who cares? But I've never experienced open racism. I've never seen a black or white person coming to me and call me a nigger or whatever racial slur so i've never felt like a white person was taking my job or i couldn't get a job because of a white person instead i was born in a family where i've been taught that skills is what will set you free if you apply for a job and you have you're not picked and the person who's been picked is a white person maybe in the long run that job would have caused you a lot of problems so in fact god made you a favor by not getting for you to not get that that's how i see life 
if you want something that bad and you don't get it, it means something. It means that maybe it's not for you and down the line, if, if, if it would have harmed you. So I don't, to me, like, I don't see uh, my life being, uh, being a huge impediment because white people can, uh, do not allow me to thrive. I'm writing my books. You know what is funny? I write a lot of books about Africa. I write a lot of books about, uh, I even wrote about, you know, the African-American culture and, you know, the book that we're talking about. And my audience is white. They're the ones who are buying it. Black people don't buy my stuff. <laughs> you see what I, black people don't buy my stuff. Yeah. I've, I've, I've written like a couple of books on, uh, on um, the economics of Africa. It's white people who are reading my stuff. Black, black people don't. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I'm not saying I, I've, I will never ever say that white privilege doesn't exist. It exists. Because to call white privilege a myth, it, it's an insult. That's where I strongly disagree with Candice Owens and all the conservative stars, as mm -hmm. I like to call them, the conservative star Candice Owens, Brandon Ted Tatum, and all these guys. Because to say that white privilege, white privilege is a myth is to say that Jim Crow never existed, slavery never existed, eugenics never existed, redlining policies never existed, you see what I mean? Like that, that's what a myth is. A myth is something that never existed. Those things existed. Yeah. So yes, white privilege exists, but it's no longer a factor to the advancement of. Uh, it's no longer a factor in preventing black people from thriving economically. It is no longer a factor. Today you have black people who are billionaires. You have black people who are CEOs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. yeah. Sure. So, and I think, yeah, the argument is that that racism is more insidious and hard to pinpoint. And so, I, I think that you can, yeah, I think there's I've heard some pretty persuasive arguments for seeing it in ways that you might not expect, and you know, systems yeah. kind of, uh, you know, have vestigial racism, like we talked about the, the war on drugs and things like that. Um, but yeah, to, to, I think there to, to to look at the situation we're in today and say that black people cannot advance, um, I think is is I think to insult black people. Yeah, it is because because like us, as I say, like when Africans come here, we're not coming here to play. We don't have time for that black lives. No, we're focused, man. We we're like we're on a mission here. <laughs> we're on a mission. When we come here, we're coming to improve our lives. We we're coming here to 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 have a better life. That's why everybody's coming here. If the United States was that bad, why why this country would have over a million immigrants? pouring into the country every year why people don't go to europe to try to to live the dream why people don't go to china do you think in china you you even have amendments that protect your rights sometimes that like, people take this country for granted which, which I, I assume you'd say is not to say that there isn't anything to fix i mean sometimes people will say on the right that i mean of course there's stuff to fix yeah yeah of course I mean, there's stuff to fix I mean, you'll hear sometimes people on the right say things like, you know, obviously there's no problem here with uh, you know, racism or anti-immigration sentiment because look at how many immigrants are coming from, from south of the border. Well, obviously there's something here that's good that they're seeing, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing bad or there's nothing that needs to be No, happen. of course, like the U.S. has its flaws, but the, the, the problem is that people are not nuanced. They're acting like yeah. it's all the time that way. 
that's the problem. No, you have to be nuanced. And the nuance is that the United States is not perfect. The United States has its flaws. It has a dark, in it, within its history, its history has a, has a dark side. <laughs> but the benefits outweigh the inconveniences in this country. That's the real and most accurate answer. Yeah. What you get in this country, the opportunities you have in this country, you will not have that in China. I'm sorry, Chinese people do not see black people as their equals. Mm. At least white people are trying to make some effort to respect black people. In China, bro, do you think those guys would come and write a constitution that would give you right? In China, you, black people would have still been slaves by now. <laughs> well, no, well, I'm yeah, serious. Yeah, my, my understanding is that, that China has essentially blamed COVID outbreaks on black people in China. Right? Yeah, you see? Yeah. That, that's what I'm trying to tell you. They, they don't, it's, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's, people need to get out of the country a little bit to understand some realities. Because most of the people that you will see are, who are, keep complaining about, yes, it's because of racism, we cannot thrive because of this, we can't do that. Those are the same that, never leave the country mm. and they're the same that watch the same media so they got intellectually intoxicated by that false narrative of course yes there is racism there are some places in the united states where there is racism if i go in the in the um uh, in the appalachia for sure <laughs> i don't think i will be I will have the same respect that i've earned from my white friends like the white people who are there they're not accustomed to blacks or to other races i mean that happens because they're just backwards because they live in backwards places it's the same in pennsylvania the rednecks or those or most of the whites who live in the bible belt like that's the way it is but does it mean that you cannot thrive because of them they're not the majority so then when you talked about narrative it, it kind of brought me back to this question of why um why black people who are born here might see things you know, generally more differently than, than, than black immigrants might, uh, why there's a progressive narrative that's more pervasive. Um, and do you think that what, maybe what's going on is that there's, they kind of, there's, there, there's this narrative that's there, that's present, that's imbibed, and then it gets passed along, and then there's kind of a confirmation bias. I, I remember I was listening to a, a, a fifth column podcast with Camille Foster, where he talked about, he, he made an interesting comment that really stuck with me, which was, you know, I wonder how many times I've experienced racism and didn't, didn't realize it because I'm not quick to assume that that's what's going on. And, and it seems to me that there are going to be, um, if you have a narrative that racism is everywhere, um, then you are more likely to see it, even if it isn't there. Yeah. So I, 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 want, I wonder if there's, there's a bit of a confirmation bias that sort of allows that. Yeah, then the confirmation bias is that in the black community, kids are taught by their parents. That's the first thing they're taught by their parents. It's to teach them about the history of slavery. When you do that, I'm not saying yes, of course, those kids need to know about slavery. It's part of, it's part of the, the country's history. But when you start by that and explaining that it is based on that, that we have all these problems, what do you want the kid to expect? instead of teaching the kids science right science instead of teaching the kid math and all these 
natural science uh, disciplines that will help the kid thrive because the reality is this okay the reality is this right now no one cares if you are oppressed or not if you have the skills especially the scientific skills believe me your race will not matter people will hire you for what you can offer to the market for what you can offer to the company believe me a black person who is who is working as a data analyst or a data scientist will not say that he's oppressed <laughs> the guy is making six figures easy so it's always those same people studying the humanities those philosophy thing saying oh you're oppressed because it's not disability they romanticize everything the reality is that we live in a world now where you prove that you are worthy through your skills that's how you make the difference and believe me a white person doesn't have time to judge oh because of his skin color i'm not going to hire him no if you have the skills the guy will hire you it's a market process the market doesn't look at color the guy needs a workforce and you need money to pay your bills so the deal is done <laughs> it goes both ways well it, it, it seems that i mean i think of uh a familiar with blaise pascal who had the famous wager about belief in god um that if you uh, don't believe in god and then you know you die and there's no afterlife then uh, it doesn't really matter you didn't lose anything um but if you um don't believe in god and there is an afterlife then you've lost something <laughs> but if you do believe in god whether there's a god or not there is no afterlife there isn't you don't lose anything so his argument was it's a net negative to not believe in god um it, you know depending on which way things go you know and so i feel like there's something similar to be said here where um you know you sort of came to this country with an attitude uh, that i think was enculturated for you which was if you work hard you'll succeed oh and yeah when i came oh, sorry, it's not cut you off. i was about to say that when i came i remember in the plane I was like, I'm coming to dominate those guys. I'm not coming to play around. I was like, I always had that motivation since 2010. I was like determined to make my way here. Well, but, but it seems that even if you were a little bit wrong about that, you'd have, you'd have more of a chance of succeeding because that was your attitude. Yeah. Whereas if somebody has an attitude that I can't succeed in this country because the deck is stacked against me, whether they're right or whether they're wrong, they're going to fail because that attitude straight out of the gate. Absolutely. Yeah. You nailed it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly the attitude. And, and plus, like people who come here, who have the attitude that I have, they necessarily succeed. It's just that the success doesn't come immediately, but it comes eventually because yeah. they are consistent. Well, yeah, and, and there's, there's, you know, on, on the far progressive side, there are people who are saying that, you know, if you went to school for, um, you know, gender studies or, or art history and you can't find a job, then you're, you're owed a living, no, no matter, even if, even if you can't sell, <laughs> nobody wants to buy what you're selling. Um, so, okay, so, uh, you know, as we kind of you know, touched on, my, my podcast is primarily interested in Christian theology, but it does touch on political and social issues where, I th you know, they seem to intersect with Christian thought and ethics. And so what got me interested in talking with you 
is that, you know, Christians should be interested in the ability of all people to flourish without regard to race. I mean, I think that's a pretty core Christian value. And, and we can't really talk about how to fix the problems of black and white disparity until we can discern what's causing them and propping them up. So, you know, white Christians in, in, in the United States anyway, seem to be divided on this issue of whether racism is the cause of these disparities that we see between black and white or not. And uh, I think even when there is agreement uh, that, there, that there are uh, racist causes behind disparities, there's a suspicion of progressive solutions which are seen as strengthening racial divisions instead of aiming toward Martin Luther King Jr.'s solution of judging by individual character instead of color. So um, I, I guess what, I, what I'm really interested in trying to figure out is do we fix the disparities we see, whether they're caused by racism or not, by spending more time talking about racial collectivism or by more time, spending more time talking about individualism and how to, uh, you know, allow individuals to flourish without being burdened. The latter. Yeah. <laughs> I that, guess that, that was a big that. setup for me to just kind of ask you a question that seemed kind of, yeah. So, um, oh, it's definitely the latter because it's like, you see, let's say it's like, let's say you're injured. And instead of thinking about how you're going to heal your injury, you keep focusing on the fact that you're injured and why you're injured. Mm -hmm. How focusing about why you're injured will help you fix your injury mm -hmm. or heal your injury. So it does, and, 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 and that's, that's the thing with progress. They focus too much. I'm not saying that what they're doing is bad. Not that it's bad, but it's the wrong approach. They're focusing too much on the problem instead of focusing on the solution. You see, let's do and let's do a comparison here. People who focus more on individualism and uh, the more like solutions or the more solutions like oriented, they want to get things done, they're more pragmatic. The progressives are more romantic. Is that romantic approach? that uh, emotional approach it's they, they think that it's by focusing on the emotion that you will you will get to something you won't get into anything you the only thing you get on emotion is to complain you complain you complain and you complain no matter what happens if you will never be satisfied and that's why you you see progressives no matter what laws will pass they will always find something that is not enough and they're going to go on the street and complain about it. Look at feminism. Since the 1920s, women wanted the right to vote. We gave them the right to vote. They wanted to have economic rights. We gave them a woman can have like a bank account. She doesn't need her husband's approval. A woman can create her own business. She has access to private property. She has access to the resources to build the wealth. But today, they still say, you're oppressed about what? What is oppressing you? I don't, what rights don't you have in 2020? You see what I mean? It, 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 and it's the same, like, I'm telling you, Cody, like in 2050, the white race will be the minority in this country. And you will still find some black people who say that they oppress. <laughs> Why? Because they need to complain. Imagine if progressives stop complaining, progressivism dies. That's the thing. They need to get it, keep going. Otherwise, it becomes irrelevant. It's the same with government, what I said earlier. If government doesn't implement regulations on a program, 
if the thing is the traffic in terms of profit, the bureaucrats will become irrelevant. It's the same thing with progressivism. Well, it makes me think of some, some comment that I'd made about uh, in the past about um, how Trumpism kind of pulls uh, pulls from Nietzsche's philosophy of ressentiment. Um, that the, that yeah. the people who are always looking for someone to blame for their problems, right. and you see you see it among you know the white right that that feel like, hey, this is my country. Why am I not successful? <laughs> who can no, I no, blame yeah, for? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it's the same. Yeah. Is that is is that of is that attitude of focusing on the problem rather rather than the solution? Well, we've been talking for a while. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I, I might let you close on uh, this question, unless you want to close somewhere else, which is. Um, can a libertarian political philosophy appeal to black Americans who are steeped in a worldview that looks for answers within a progressive mindset? You know, uh, first of all, I have to say, I do not, I do no longer label myself as a libertarian. I consider more myself as a classical liberal, more like a, um, a Lockean, you know, John Locke, a Lockean classical liberal. Because one of the core values of libertarianism is the non-aggression pact, or the non-aggression principle, that's how you guys call it. And I don't believe in it. I don't believe in it because it's too abstract and utopian. It's not everyone who wants to do good. Unfortunately, that's like, you have people who genuinely they take pleasure in harming others. <laughs> so when you as libertarians, oh, why is this all the nap? No, it's not the nap like that. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that we need government. But of course, I will choose libertarianism hundred times over progressivism. If I have to incite more black people to come to libertarianism, I'd rather do that than to let them perish in progressivism. Well, well, maybe I'll reframe the question as, um, what do you think is stopping black people from being interested in a classical liberal viewpoint? Uh, it's uh, what make them stop is that, how can I put it? Uh, I'm trying to formulate my answer. The question is very easy, but I can't give an easy answer for some reason. What prevents black people, yeah, I think, is that they still believe that they need government for social changes. That is a problem. But that, and that is the reason why a lot of blacks are Democrats in this country, although the Democratic Party that never wanted them to, to be emancipated in the first place. It's a Democratic Party that encouraged slavery and Jim Crow and all, you know, all the, all the, so, all the social slurs that they've been through but it's it's yeah it's that black people still think they still believe that uh they still believe that the government has a considerable role to play to me the best way is to bring back the values of the church because the the older i'm not a religious person the black community and black people in general are highly embedded in the belief of god in the belief of a higher authority. So if we're able to combine Christian values with classical liberalism, that I think will have a significant impact in, 
in incentivizing more black people to believe in classical liberal uh, liberalism although classical liberalism in fact was a rebellion against christianity kind of <laughs> it was more it was more not against christianity but against the church that's what it was because there's a difference between christianity and the church christianity is the belief the religious belief that is personal and the church is a uh, is an organization well, yeah. There's also sort of comp there's strains of Christian enlightenment and humanist enlightenment, so it gets kind of messy. But yeah, yeah. so yeah, I think like messy. Yeah, I think uh, amal amalgamating the two will be a good stepping stone for blacks to start embracing more uh, classical liberal values. Well, and, and I think too of more kind of laissez-faire. Um, you know, black thinkers like Frederick Douglass and Malcolm X, who basically said, get off my back and I'll do fine. Yeah, that, that, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. black people believe in laissez-faire. It's, it's just the, it's just the, 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 that fear that, oh, what if government is not here? Because that's what they've been accustomed to. That's what they know. That's the only thing they know. That's why you have many blacks who are in politics and the political system doesn't improve their lives. Well, Jermel Van is the author of The Economic Condition of Black America in the 20th Century, A Historical and Empirical Analysis, which I got on Amazon. I read it on Kindle. Um, and is there a, a website or any or a social media that people should check into if they want to see what you're up to? Uh, Instagram. Instagram. I know I've always wanted to create my own website. I've been slackening on it, but I prefer Instagram. That's where I post basically everything. And you've like got a series video. of YouTube videos too, correct? Yeah, I do have YouTube videos where I'm teaching econometrics for anyone that is interested in um, in learning how to run linear regressions and uh, and uh, using basically empirical tools in, in economic analysis. Yes, I do that. And I, and But most of my videos address what we talk about, uh, political issues and social issues and economic issues. Well, Germinal, I really appreciate you taking time to talk to me. It was a really interesting and engaging conversation, and uh, I'm glad to have been able to have it with you. Thank you very much, Cody. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.